Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 21. The Unknowable Room. Harry racked his brains over the next week as to how he was to persuade Slughorn to hand over the true memory. But nothing in the nature of a brainwave occurred, and he was reduced to doing what he did increasingly these days. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My husband and I keep a list of travel destinations that we want to go to one day. And in our top five is the beautiful little city of Savannah, Georgia. I always wanted to go there, too. I've never been. And it's supposed to be beautiful. And what makes it particularly beautiful is that we have a local group in Savannah, Georgia. It's run by the fabulous Emily Piet. Emily, thank you so much for bringing folks together to do sacred readings. And if you want to join this group in Savannah or any of the other nearly 60 local groups that we have going now, go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. So Casper, my friend Genevieve Hayek is an incredible woman. She is a surgeon in New Orleans, and she and I have been friends for like over 15 years. And she and I have something that we call a reasonability test. When we can text each other or call each other at any time and ask each other, am I being reasonable? And we've been doing this back and forth for, I mean, well over a decade. And every single time I'll be like, I think this, my brother thinks that. Am I being reasonable or is he being like completely unreasonable? Like what's happening? Those are the two options. Either (laughs) I'm right or he's wrong. And she, for years, has just like always validated me, is always like, yes, you are being completely reasonable. Well, recently, I got into an argument with someone, and I texted Genevieve, and I said, okay, here's the situation, you know, like the whole thing. Like, then she said this, and then I said that, and then the dog barked (laughs) twice, like full picture of the situation. And I was like, aren't I being reasonable? And she was like, no, you're not. Mm. And so we talked about it in the way that I was being unreasonable, and I was like, oh, That's really helpful. Thank you so much. And what is so interesting to me about that was that I got that same feeling of affirmation even though she disagreed with me, which I wouldn't have thought it would, right? Ahead of time, I would have been like, no, you're supposed to agree with me. But what it showed to me was that affirmation is a lot about being heard. You Mm. don't need to be agreeing with someone to affirm them. And the important difference between affirmation and agreement just felt like a revelation to me in that moment. 
And so we're going to talk about the theme of affirmation today. And I think that I see a lot of that with Hermione in this chapter, where she, like, affirms Ron's feelings that he wants to get out of this relationship with Lavender, but does not agree with the strategy that he's employing agrees with Harry that Draco's acting suspiciously, but not about his priorities, right? And she can walk this line of being affirming without agreeing. And I think it's such a difficult line to walk and one that I want to learn to walk better. I am just completely gobsmacked. I've never thought of that distinction. I've always thought of affirmation as someone like confirming your reality or as like, like you say, agreeing with you. I am so looking forward to this conversation because I've never thought of it that way. But Casper, before we get into this theme conversation more, I would like to affirm you that it is your turn to go first in the 30-second recap. Bring it on. 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so Harry still has to get this memory from Slughorn, but he's not paying much attention because he's totally obsessed with what Draco is doing. And Hermione keeps telling him, like, no, you need to focus on this. And um, Hermione helps Ron with his homework because he's got a pen that's from his brother's shop and it's going wild. And he says the magical words, I love you, Hermione, maybe for the first time. And then suddenly Dobby and Creature appear and they report where Draco's been going and he's been in the room of requirement. So Harry starts hanging out there because they're going to go tr- uh, do apparition testing and, and practice. And then he um, scares Goyle, and well, whose little girl is terrifying, and then Tonks is there and then he's still doesn't work i'm gonna send this to the judges do i have to go if he does a perfect job (laughs) i still feel like there's a couple of things i missed okay on my mark get set go 30 seconds on the clock three two one go So I would say that the only big thing that you missed is that Snape is mean to Harry about, like, the difference between a ghost and an inferi. (laughs) And Ron stands up to him and then gets really sulky because Snape is like, well, you can't apparate. And so they go and they sulk in Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. And Moaning Myrtle is like, oh, I have a relationship with a boy who's also bullied. And they're like, wait, what? Um, And Ron is able to apparate for the first time. And so it's, like, very exciting because he feels better after he bullies Moaning Myrtle. Amazing. So, Casper, I've noticed that we often start with a criticism of someone in this chapter. And I was wondering if we should start today with something we liked, something great we saw in the chapter. Well, the moment where I felt like we really see someone making an effort to be affirming, even when it's hard and they're not rewarded for it, is when Dobby and Creature show up because they have a report on where Draco Malfoy has been. And it's kind of hilarious because Creature is the first one to arrive, but actually shares zero information. Dobby is the one who like says all the relevant stuff. And then at the very end, Hermione says to Creature, Creature's done well too. And there's so much in here because first of all, has he? Like he's not, he's not shared any useful information in this context. Secondly, like he doesn't want to be there. Thirdly, he's been horrible to Hermione from the very beginning. And straight after this lovely comment from Hermione gives more kind of like, horrific racist response to her face being like, oh, I don't want to talk to this mudblood. And so I just, I was so compelled by that moment of someone who has such compassion. And even if with Spew, Hermione made some missteps as we all do when we're trying to engage with service or justice work, I was just really touched by this moment of affirmation, which was unasked for and unrewarded, but still freely given. Yeah, part of me is like, I wonder if Creature in part rejects it because he knows it's untrue and therefore it's like a little patronizing. But I still think it was the right thing for her to do because it was Mm. a moment of relationship building. And we see it pay off in book seven. 
Hermione's insistence on entirely humanizing creature yeah. is what ends up making him an ally and, like, helps them eventually defeat Voldemort. So even though they have every reason to be so mad at Creature right now, Creature is the one who betrayed them, which resulted in, in Sirius's death, mm. I think that Hermione's insistence on affirming him and at least at minimum affirming his humanity, I right. do think— even though it doesn't pay off in that moment, I think it does pay off. And it was virtuous in and of itself, regardless of the payoff. But I also think it happens to pay off. But here's the other thing about Harry and Dobby in this moment. It's it's a lot like how I've asked previous bosses to treat me. Like, I literally sat down with a boss and I was like, um, so I just really respond well to praise. And I would love you to praise me more. And I feel like maybe Dobby is written some little note to Harry being like, when I spend a whole week without sleeping, following someone who you want me to follow, please praise me excessively. It's such a sweet moment of praise. And for me personally, you know, we always joke about the iTunes reviews as a place that I, <laughs> that's my happy place. And it just is, right? Like I find praise super affirming. It helps me do the things I do in the world. So like, we shouldn't make fun of Dobby if he did ask for this praise, which he probably didn't. I think he did ask through his vulnerability, right? I don't think Dobby is as self-aware as you are and so doesn't know. <laughs> That's a really big stretch. <laughs> no, I think it's so good of you to be like, this is a way that you can help me be good, right? Like, you know, especially because Ariana is the opposite. If she sends me an episode and I don't send back any edits, she feels like I didn't pay close enough attention. <laughs> And she's like, if you didn't have a criticism, you don't love me. And so now I know I have to criticize her and affirm you. And I personally just feel so set up for success in these friendships and work relationships because I'm like, thank you for telling me what you need. Whereas I feel like I'm more like Dobby, who like the two of you know what I need, but I don't know myself well enough to explicitly ask for it. New socks. <laughs> yeah, so Dobby and I are just both like tennis ball eyes, like... I don't know, guys, can you take care of me? And I feel like he has subliminally said to Harry, what I need is constant affirmation. But I also think that what Dobby really needs is affirmation from Harry. When I feel like that Harry-Dobby relationship is interesting because, of course, Dobby is free, and that's really important. And yet Harry is the only person who's able to infer things like when, when Dobby is struggling to speak ill of the Malfoy family, for example— you know, Harry's able to just put in a sweet word that encourages him or that, that you know, he's not Dobby's master, but there's a certain kind of relationship between these two, which does come through. And so, yeah, there's something special that for some people to give us affirmation, it feels like, oh, nice. Thank you very much. And for some other people, it's like life giving or life saving in this case, I think for Dobby. This moment between Harry and Dobby is really one of the most beautiful and tender mm. moments for me. You know, I think that until this reading and this reading through this theme, I always saw Harry really understanding his love for Dobby the first time only in Dobby's death. Mm -hmm. And that we see Harry's love for Dobby only through the fact that he grieves so hard for Dobby once he dies. But this was a moment where I was like, oh, no, Harry loves Dobby here. Yeah. You know, in the moment is, of course, you know, Dobby has said to Creature, it is important that you know, Creature, that Draco Malfoy is not nice to house elves. And then he immediately feels a desire to self-harm because he has said something bad about Draco. And Harry anticipates that. 
and grabs Dobby sort of by the waist before Dobby can run into a wall to hurt himself. Mm. And that to me was, you know, like put affirmation in its place because it isn't affirming. It's the opposite of affirming. He's saying, no, this instinct that you have to hurt yourself is wrong. It is acknowledging that there are times that we don't see ourselves clearly and we actually need people not to affirm us, but to love us. Well, I mean, this opens another question for me, which is the first time I heard the word affirmation in, you know, preparing for this conversation, I was thinking of more and more people do like affirmations to themselves, right? In the morning, you might say a mantra, which is a beautiful practice. And I think a really interesting way actually of engaging with text in a sacred way. But I wondered to what extent actually do we need relationship to be affirmed? You know, how much can we self-affirm or how much more powerful is an affirmation from someone else? Because I think we see this with with Ron's relationship with apparition throughout this book, actually, in, in a lot of ways, because it would be easy for Ron to kind of say like, oh, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. But we've seen that with Quidditch. It doesn't work. Like it's exponentially more powerful when you're affirmed by someone else, I think. There's a great line in Jane Eyre about that where somebody says to Jane, like, you have to love yourself and that should be enough. And Jane says, I would rather die than be the only person who loves me. I need other people to love me, too. Mm. And I just think that that's so true, right? And it, it has to start with us loving and respecting ourselves. But I think that that is one of the first moments that we're really invited in the novel to love Jane, that she's so vulnerable that she can say, like, no, I am weak enough that I know I need other people to love me. And I think that that's true of all of us. All of us have that weakness, and that that very weakness is its own kind of strength. A hundred percent. And I think because we live in a very individualist culture, it's easy for us to think that the only way that you do that is on your own. And actually, often it's through someone loving you that you also love yourself, right? Like that's as a child, right? A parent or a caregiver is helping you to love yourself because you're being raised in love. And so that self-respect and that self-affirmation, I think in some ways is always an echo of something that's also been given to us. I had never thought of that, and I think it's so smart because, yeah, I guess I thought of self-love first, but it's not. It's a cycle, right? Because you need to learn from the outside that you are worth loving also. And, and, I mean, so many people start life without that love, right, and can still build lives of beauty and love. And I think about people being in natural environments, right? When you're out in the world, sometimes you just feel, like, overwhelmed by this moment of— of sufficiency and goodness and love. And I mean, that kind of love, I think, doesn't even come from ourselves or from other people. It just it just uh, arrives. <laughs> you know, and Harry is the best example of that I yeah. can think of, because even though, you know, at 12, he starts to find out how loved he was by Lily and James, he has no conscious memory of it until 11. And I do think that he's someone who does have a sense of self-love even while staying at the Dursleys. And he preserves that by being funny and pushing back. And I think that even Harry is somebody who demonstrates that, like, these things are complicated when they come in whatever order. I guess what I'm mostly saying is that I wish for everybody that they have the love of somebody else and self-love. So, Casper, I have a moment of affirmation that really bothered me at the beginning of this chapter which is Hermione is sitting there and affirming Ron in his spelling mistakes. She's like, oh, it seems like the spell check quill has stopped working. And 
you know, like she's the one who wipes the spilled ink off of his paper and she's the one like she just keeps doing for him things that he absolutely should be able to do for himself. And so the thing that I am worried that Hermione is doing here is affirming Ron's view of himself as someone who needs her, as someone who can't make it on his own, as someone who is like dopey and makes dumb mistakes. And I just think that she is affirming some really negative views of himself. Mm. Now I'm probably psychoanalyzing Hermione too much, but I'm like, do you feel like the only way he will love you is if he needs you? Ooh, <laughs> well, that's a big question because I think, I mean, the first thing I, I'm reflecting on is that one of the kind of key principles of community organizing is don't do for other people what they can do for themselves. And that's hard. It's really, really hard, especially when you're standing there and you're like, oh, just this one little thing and I could make things so much better. And yet it breeds exactly as, as you're saying, this culture of dependency and also people's limited belief of what they themselves can do, right? It actually doesn't serve the person in the long run. And at the same time, right, like if you're a parent or if you're a lover, you're not a community organizer in that relationship, right? It's not like you can just like leave. And so at this point, I feel like Hermione and Ron are so enmeshed. You know, we all have different ways in which we express our our love and commitment to one another. And this is, I think this is just one of the ways in which she does that. And listen, I don't know a single partnership or relationship where there isn't a little bit of codependency, right? Like where there isn't a little bit of that kind of... I have no problem with codependency <laughs> in a codependent relationship. Aren't we all? <laughs> My concern about this is that it is a codependency that affirms his worst thoughts about himself, mm. which is mm. like, you're good at everything. I'm bad at everything. You're going to pass the apparition test immediately. Like he thinks that whenever he doesn't have Hermione's help, he He's can't gonna fail. do it. Yeah. And I think that what she is inadvertently doing is affirming that he's incapable of mm. succeeding without her. Well, th this is why I'm so perplexed by both Ron and Hermione's complete ability to stay out of Harry's cycle with Draco. Because neither of them are getting into his obsession of, like, finding out that it's the room of requirement, right? Like, Hermione doesn't even know that the house elves are on this expedition to figure it out. Well, that's because Harry kept it from her. Because I know, I know. But it's, but it's a symbol of neither Ron nor Hermione's willingness to engage with this. And usually what happens in their relational triangle is that at least one of them will be, like, on Harry's side trying to figure something out. And so, I don't know, it, it was a sign of hope for me that actually, although, of course, we all have challenging relationships, they, they are being very mature about this. And certainly Hermione is very clear about the priority, which is to get the memory from Slughorn. So I, I wanted to celebrate that because I think perhaps like your friend, they're able to love and appreciate Harry without affirming his obsession, which is completely sidetracking what he should be doing. The final thing I'll say about Ron is he is so good in Snape's classroom. Snape is terrifying for everyone. He's already been taking points off Gryffindor for all sorts of reasons. And Ron is so, he's just very brave in defending Harry's totally reasonable discernment between how you would notice an inferi and free versus a ghost, right? Like ghosts are transparent. Yes, that is what you would notice. And so I, I just thought that was a wonderful example of him affirming Harry in this really like strong, public risky way, a sweet moment of their friendship. I feel like, it would have meant a lot to Harry, even if Ron whispered to him afterwards, like, right. oh, my God, your definition was better. And it's even, <laughs> like, more loving that it's this, like, very public affirmation. Yeah. yeah. 
But Casper, before we wrap up our theme conversation, we have to talk about what's actually reported by the house elves, which is that they figure out that Draco has been going into the room of requirement and that Crab and Goyle are taking Polyjuice Potion in order to stand outside and guard it. And then Hermione has this additional, you know, revelation of like, oh, my God, I helped pick up the skills of (laughs) not this like scared first year girl, but either Crab or Goyle. So there's this interesting moment where Ron says, I can't believe that Crab and Goyle are willing to do that. And for a moment in reading through Affirmation, I was like, well, they are like bearing witness and they are affirming Draco's project (laughs) by showing up with their bodies. And then the next line is Harry being like, also because Draco probably showed him his dark mark. Mm. And I was like, oh, they're doing this from fear. Right. They are not being affirming. They are terrified. Yeah. And then what really grossed me out was that Harry, who's kind of under his invisibility cloak, goes up to this little girl who he now knows as Goyle and says like, aren't you pretty in this leering way? And it might just be a misplaced adolescent joke, but if you read it through a Me Too lens, it's really gross. Even if it's a misplaced adolescent joke, it's really gross. For sure. I I guess I just found it a very challenging moment rereading it now as an adult and paying close attention to the text. It was a really complicated moment for me as a reader. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's so sad and interesting about this moment to me is how easy of a hat creepy man who treats women badly is to put on. Yeah. Like Harry, who we have never seen treat a woman truly badly in this way. Right. right? He knows exactly how to put that hat on. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing at the end of this chapter when when Ron looks to the rest of the group and says like, oh, women. You're like, where did you get that from? That's not from Arthur, right? Like, is that from your brothers? Is that from teachers in the school? Like, is that from, I don't know, wizard TV? Like, where where is that coming from? The Simpsons go to Azkaban. (laughs) I mean, Ron is saying it about Tonks, right? That like Tonks is weepy for a reason that Ron can't understand. And that to me was such an interesting moment of like, oh, right. That is exactly when any form of bigotry comes out, as soon as you don't understand another person's behavior, you're like, Mm. oh, it's because of whatever obvious low-hanging fruit insulting thing is to say. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't understand why Tonks is behaving the way she is. Oh, it's probably because she's a woman. But yeah, I guess I just think that the way that it relates to affirmation is that these identities get affirmed again and again. I Actually, Hermione does stand up to Ron and says, like, no woman would react the way that you did to Madame Rosamurda right. not liking a joke. Right. But even that, the gender stereotypes are being affirmed by Hermione, right? And the ways that these identities and these jokes get affirmed through, you know, I don't think that there is a Wizard Simpsons that Ron is watching getting this from. I just think it's in the ether and it gets affirmed again and again. Yeah. So, Vanessa, we're returning to a beloved spiritual practice in this episode, the practice of Pardes, a Jewish textual practice, which, like Lexio, has four different stages, but the questions are a little different. 
And I've chosen a piece of text that comes from about in the middle of the chapter. And it's the sentence, when he reached his destination, he found it deserted. So the first stage of Pardes is to look for the pshat, which is the intended meaning. What's the surface level meaning of, of this piece of text? And we encounter it when Harry is under the cloak going to discover what Draco is doing in the room of requirement. But then here's the sentence. When he reached his destination, he found it deserted. So there's there's no one in the corridor. The next phase is to look for the remes. And so this is kind of looking at hints of the deeper or hidden or symbolic meaning beyond just the literal sense. And the way that we like to do that is to think about one of these words and where else in the text it shows up, where else in in the whole Harry Potter canon of the seven books, where else it shows up. And I thought it might be fun to think about places that are deserted. So what are spaces that we come across in the Harry Potter books that are deserted? So one of the things that's occurring to me is that Colin is always catching Harry in deserted spaces. <laughs> He's like, you're alone. Can I have a picture? And Which obviously that form of desertion leads us to think that Colin is most likely following Harry so that he can catch him when he's deserted. Ooh, and what's interesting there is that in this moment in the text that I've chosen, Harry is under the invisibility cloak, so he's invisible. But whenever Colin catches him and takes a photograph of him, he makes Harry visible, right? Like he captures his image in a photograph that captures his his likeness. And so there's this interesting relationship between visibility and invisibility that happens in deserted corridors. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another moment that occurred to me is when Cedric and Harry arrive in the graveyard for a Mm. moment, they think it's deserted. Oh, yeah. Right. So there's this like ominous moment of desertion. And then it turns out that it isn't. That's another great one. I'm also thinking about all of the deserted spaces that the trio show up at in book seven when they keep apparating. Oh. They show up to a deserted Grimald place and then they show up to all these deserted campgrounds that Hermione has gone to like on season. Well, and in book five at the ministry as well, those deserted rooms that they're walking through. Ooh, yeah. I mean, de- desertion has an ominous... I mean, that's that's kind of such a, a crucial thing, right? Like it suggests danger. It suggests also that they're on the run. And what I like about that is that Harry is running from something in his obsession with Draco, right? I think he's running from the fact that he doesn't know how to solve this problem of getting the memory from Slughorn. And this kind of trailing of Draco and this trying to get into the room of requirement is a way in which he feels like he can do something. Well, the other thing about deserted spaces is that in order for it to be deserted, it has to have once been filled. It's Uh. different than an empty space, right? An empty space could never have had anyone there. It could have always been empty. But a place has to have once had something in order for it to now be deserted, which means that it has some history to it, which is haunting positively or negatively the space that you're in. And this corridor for Harry is haunted by the memory of this is where he was caught by Draco and Umbridge, right? Like he has had Real things happen. So, yeah, I don't think it's just trying to avoid the Slughorn thing. I think he's really motivated by hating Draco. Oh, so good. Well, let's go to step three, which is to think about the drush, which we explore by thinking about, let's imagine if this was a piece of text that you were going to preach on. So if there was a sermon that you were going to share based on this little piece of text, what is it that you would say? So let me just read it for you again. 
When he reached his destination, he found it deserted. I think for me, there's something in this, like the metaphor of a horizon. We've just had the new year, right? So a lot of people have been setting goals and and hopes for this year and thinking about their future selves that they want to be in the world they want to live in. And it's very easy to believe when we set a goal that like, oh, I'll be happy when I get this goal, right? Like, oh, it'll be enough when this happens or, you know, finally things will be solved. I do this all the time where I'm like, oh, once I've that event has passed, ah, I'll have space and time and I'm going to start reading more, right? And you know as well as I do, whenever that thing happens, turns out the space is deserted, right? Like I've reached the destination, but actually the horizon's just moved. So I think there's something about an invitation to sufficiency of where we are in this time when, when there's so much focus on goals and, and you know, new year, new you, and to look at the place where we are and to see its goodness and sufficiency because we're in it, right? Like the horizon is always deserted. Like we're never at the horizon. And so in this reading, I, I want to look at the beauty of not being at the horizon and being in the place where we are. How about you, Vanessa? Do you mind reading me the sentence one more time? Please? Yeah. When he reached his destination, he found it deserted. I mean, I think the thing I would preach on is the fact that he's on the wrong destination. Like, he should be focusing on the slughorn thing. This is an obsession born out of nothing positive. And that if you are, like, huffing after something really hard— You have to keep evaluating if it's where you want to go. And I think that that's something that, you know, I would imagine you deal with in your work. And I think it's something that Ariana and I every couple months are like, okay, we're working so hard. Is this still something we want to be going toward? Or do we want to slow down and say no to certain projects? And and in the next chapter, we're going to see him show up and have it be so rewarding. And so, yeah, I just think that Often we can get in ruts and in grinds and stop wondering if where we're going is even where we want to end up. Well, that brings us to the final step of Pardes, which is the sowed, the secret. And when we do this practice, we try and just take a little bit of quiet time to listen to the sentence one more time and to kind of open your imaginative brain. And it doesn't have to be a rational reading. We're really, we're like an empty perch on which a little bird can sit for the secret to just arrive. So let's see what secret might arrive with this reading of the sentence. When he reached his destination, he found it deserted. So I'm not sure that this is a sowed, but it made me think of Hagrid showing up and finding Lily and James dead. And I would imagine he shows up and thinks the house is deserted and that all is lost. You know, and instead he does find Harry. He finds horrific tragedy. But, that, like, sometimes we arrive places and we think they're entirely deserted, and they're not. There's tragedy, but there's still something good there. And I think I'm just thinking about that because of the Australian bushfires that are going on. And I guess I just want to think about something hopeful coming from destruction. Vanessa, what came to me was something <laughs> kind of juvenile. Honestly, I just thought of the word dessert and that dessert comes at the end of the meal and the <laughs> the word deserted is at the end of this sentence. And some things are as they should be because you can put dessert at the beginning of the meal, but it's just not as satisfying. 
Well, no, it, it is as satisfying, but then you also need one at the end of the meal. <laughs> and that that is too much dessert. Is it? <laughs> it's now time for a voicemail, and we got a lot of beautiful and heartfelt voicemails on the topic of J.K. Rowling's transphobic tweet that went out a couple of weeks ago now. We haven't been back in the studio since that happened, and so this is our first chance to respond. So here is a voicemail from Sam Blankensay, but we've also uploaded a whole playlist of voicemails on SoundCloud if you want to listen to what our community has to say. And you can read our response to that tweet on our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. Hi, Vanessa Casper and Ariana. My name's Sam. I use they or he pronouns, and I'm from Wicklow in Ireland. I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years now, and it's been an amazing thing to, to discover. I realized I was trans at 16 when I was finally had the language to describe my identity. And honestly, it saved my life. Before that, I was self-harming a lot and I was thinking about suicide. And when I realized I was trans, I got involved with the community and I was able to explore my identity and, and work as part of something bigger. I actually ended up becoming a staff member at the National Trans Organization for a couple of years. Looking back, I would say I felt a lot like Harry or some of the Muggle-born students, like Hermione. Um, because I only discovered my identity at 16, I felt a bit like them, only discovering this whole new world that they were part of at 11. When finally somebody came and went, look, you're not different. Well, you are, but you're different in a great way. And I really felt like that when I realized who I was. It can be really difficult to discover this identity that is rejected by a lot of society and you see that within the Harry Potter books you see Hermione being called mudblood and like that you're seeing trans people today and specifically trans women being invalidated because they only realize their identity at a later stage. Being trans is actually one of the things I'm most grateful for in life. I have an amazing community and a chosen family who I am so incredibly proud of. I have learned so much from being different. I am so grateful that I am trans because I wouldn't change it for the world and it's made me who I am. I'd like to give a blessing to anyone who's got an identity found later in life or one that they're struggling to come to terms with and also to all of the trans people who've been so hurt by JK Rowling in the past few weeks because I know myself it's been it's been really difficult. Thank you for your support of the trans community for this podcast for always standing up for what's right. Sam, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. And I think you so eloquently say exactly what's right. The beauty of living a trans life as well as the struggle and just just the deep betrayal that I think so many of us felt. You know, we've we've loved these characters. We've loved this book and it's hard. I know for a lot of us, it was hard to think of continuing to treat a text as sacred when you, we feel so betrayed by its author. And I think... You know, I remember just wanting to remind myself as much as anyone else that sacred reading isn't about authorial intent and the world and the characters and everything within these books is just as valid for us before and after this tweet, I think, in, in, all, in all of its imperfection. It's not to say the text is perfect, but I just really appreciated your voicemail and all the voicemails that we received and all of the tweets and emails. I know this was something that's so important for all of us. And I think, uh, I think you captured it beautifully. So thank you for sharing that. So as we come to the close of this episode, Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from this chapter. And today I'm going to bless Dobby. I know we talked about Dobby a lot up front in this episode, but I was just remembering like 
when you don't get enough sleep, it's horrible. <laughs> and this isn't just like one night of bad sleep. The people I was thinking of were friends of mine and family members who are new parents. I don't even know how people do it. Lack of sleep survival skills that Dobby exhibits. And I think that so many young parents somehow exhibit. So for Dobby and anyone who's not getting enough sleep, I, I hope that rest is coming. And yeah, just a blessing for you. You're amazing. And I want to bless Lavender. Mm. I don't think Hermione is being cruel to Lavender, but I, I do think that Ron avoiding her is quite cruel. And everybody sort of knowing what's going on except Lavender is quite cruel. Ron says about her that the more he tries to, like, demonstrate that he's not interested, the tighter she holds on like a giant squid and to, like, be called a name by, like, somebody who is pretending to love you and care about you is just really horrible. And so I want to offer a blessing for anyone who's ever felt betrayed by someone who they thought that they cared deeply for. Lavender deserves better. Absolutely. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode and all of our episodes. Or you can come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. Women of Harry Potter is now exclusive on Patreon, so go and check us out on Patreon, and please support us there. You can also leave Casper a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail by sending an email to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 22, After the Burial, through the theme of bitterness. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music, as ever, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. We are distributed by PRX. Thanks so much to Sam Blankensee for his voicemail. Thanks to Emily, who suggested the theme of this show, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone. I feel like there's also some maturation in how Hermione is a firming creature. So I, I just thought... It's not as thirsty. <laughs> That's right. Right. She's leaving, she's leaving that creature thirst trap behind. Um, but she is thirsty for compassion, and that is why we love Hermione. Absolutely. <laughs> You're not allowed to cut that out. That's too good. Hermione, <laughs> thirsty for compassion. I want that's the that's the t-shirt I want. Thirsty for compassion. <laughs> Just you don't want to wear that. People will come up to you on the subway and do such weird things to you. <laughs> <laughs>